Well, if you have your copy of the scriptures before you, turn to Matthew chapter 16. Um, we will, I'll, I'm going to read that. I'll refer back to it later in the service um, or in the, in the sermon. Uh, but I will, be, I will be bouncing around all over the scriptures this morning. But they will be up on the screen behind us, hopefully, um, so that you can follow along as well so you're not having to speed flip through the Bible. So I'll read Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19 for us. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would open up your word to us as we learn more about uh, your church these next four weeks. God, I pray that you would uh, uh, help us to put aside whatever we might, whatever kind of baggage we might bring to the table this morning. I pray that we would be able to to put that aside so that it won't distract us from hearing what you have to say about your church. And we pray that today in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title, so the next four weeks will be will be on a will be in a topical series on the church. Um, and after that we'll be in 1 Corinthians. Um, but for the next four weeks, I want us to focus in on uh, on what the church is. And we're going to look at different aspects of it. But the title of this series is a church for the world. So I want to explain what I mean by that title first before we go on, because I think uh, that will give you an idea of where we want to go these next four weeks. So how does the church answer the question that the world is asking? Now, the world may not know that they're asking this question. I understand that. So um, I don't think people are walking around actually saying this, but I think deep down in everyone's heart, they are asking this question. What is the alternative to this place? This can't be all there is. What is the alternative to this world? And I think that's an important question to ask because I believe in many ways the church oftentimes comes up short when answering this question. You can walk into certain buildings, church buildings, on a Sunday morning today, and you are met with the same sort of vibe and atmosphere and entertainment culture that the world has to offer. So it's not an alternative, but more of the same. But that's not what the church is called to be. Peter, in his first letter, describes the church as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's a picture and a description of the church. And what this tells us is that the church is not to be another place that looks like, acts like, or lives like the culture around them. Someone who is not a Christian, and this might be a a little controversial and might surprise you a bit, but someone who is not a Christian should feel slightly uncomfortable in a gathering like this on a Sunday. It should be unfamiliar to them because the church and Christianity, they are not seeker-sensitive. Think about Jesus' own words, and I'll just name a few, uh, just quote a few here. Uh, there, is, there is no sensitivity when Jesus is calling people to follow him. Take up your cross. Take, take up the instrument of death and follow me is not sensitive. Come and die is not sensitive. Uh, when, when he's approached by a man who wants to follow him and, and, and uh, Jesus says, well, come on, let's go, follow me right now. He says, whoa, 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 I, need, I got some things to attend to at home. I actually have to bury my father. And Jesus says to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. That's not sensitive. Other places, leave father, mother, sister, and brother is not sensitive. Leave your family of origin is not sensitive. Sell all you have and give to the poor. Jesus says this flat out to to a rich man. That's not a sensitive way to interact with someone. Sell all you have and give to the poor, then you can follow me. So if if this is Jesus' invitation into the church, then we should probably give the church a closer look. Because giving out swag with your church logo or singing a Beatles song to open your worship gathering doesn't seem like the same thing that Jesus is saying in the New Testament. The uh, philosopher James K.A. Smith said, only if there are healthy, transformative congregations where people encounter the risen Christ can we hope to have a transformative effect on the world around us. If you care about civil society, if you care about the culture around you, you should care about the health of the church. And so... In order for you to care about the health of the church, you have to understand what the church truly is and what the Bible says the church truly is. So I want to ask four questions these next four weeks to help us to understand and maybe get at what Jesus truly calls us to as the church. So this morning we will will, um, look at how do we define it, how do we define the church. Uh, Next week we'll look at how we keep it. Uh, Week three, we'll look at how do we protect it. And then week four is how do we live as the church? How do we live it? So the word uh, ecclesiology is the area of theological study concerned with understanding the church. 
It's a word that is derived from the Greek word ekklesia, uh, which simply means gathering or assembly. So it doesn't necessarily mean church specifically. So uh, you could use this for any type of gathering, actually, this word ekklesia. Uh, in Acts chapter 19, verse 32, Luke uses it here when he says, the assembly was in confusion, or the ecclesia was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did, did not even know why they were there. And then just a few verses later, after that, the word is used in a completely different way in Acts 19.39. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly, a legal ecclesia. So both examples are uh, of the use of the are, are, are both are examples of the use of the word ecclesia. So the first ecclesia here is an angry mob, and the second ecclesia is an ordered and official gathering. So in the same way, the Christian ecclesia is a gathering of people that we refer to as the church. So ecclesiology this big theological word that just simply means the study of the church, ecclesiology seeks to understand the nature and function of this sort of gathering called the church, which includes the mission of the church, the ministry of the church, and the structure of the church, as well as the role and the overall plan of God that he has for his church. And this word is an important belief to understand. So don't throw it out just because it's a big word that you don't use in everyday language because your ecclesiology matters to your Christian life. What you believe about the church, believe it or not, affects what you believe about God. It affects what you believe about the Bible. It affects what you believe about Jesus. It affects what you believe about the Holy Spirit. It affects what you believe about salvation, about discipleship, about worship, about communion, and on and on the list goes. And now I understand with just the amount of people in the room, your understanding of the church may be influenced by a number of different factors. So you, you may be hearing these next four sermons with a lot of uh, presuppositions that you have uh, that have been developed in your mind over the years of your interaction with, uh, with, with the church. So maybe how you grew up. Maybe, maybe the church was simply a way your family spent time together. And so you say, all right, well, we're going to go to church together as a family. That happens a lot during you know, Mother's Days and Father, Father's Day. You have a lot more people show up on those days because they're spending time together as a family, and church is a good place to do that. Or maybe church was only a place you went to twice a year. You went on uh, the high holy days of Easter and Christmas. And that's the only time you went. And that's your only understanding of the church. Maybe it's a place you go when you have nothing better to do. Or when your schedule allows you to go. Or when you feel like waking up early on a Sunday morning. Maybe you've had a bad experience. Whether that be with a pastor or with the church as a whole. And I know those things happen, and I have some of that in my own church experience. And maybe these things have, have left you bitter or even suspicious about the church. Or maybe it's merely a religious institution to you, and it doesn't have any special meaning. Or maybe it's something you've never been a part of, 
Maybe this is your first time that you have actually uh, stepped foot into a church gathering, and everything about this is foreign to you. So for the next four weeks, I want to ask you, just kind of pastorally, I'm not going to force you to do this, but I'll ask you to set those presuppositions aside, just for four weeks, so that you are better able to hear what the Bible says the church truly is. Because all of those things that you've you know, grown up with or you've kind of developed on your own or the interactions that you've had with, with churches or with other pastors or other church leaders, all of those things, whether you've ever heard the word ecclesiology before in your entire life before this moment, all of those things are a part of your ecclesiology. You have an ecclesiology. You have a belief about the church in some way, shape, or form. Because all of these things that I just mentioned are affecting what you believe about the church. So the question we are asking this morning is, what is a church? How how does the Bible define what a church is? Now, this is a question that, that seems to have many, many answers to it, and it is very intricate, um, even within Christianity. I have a, a lot of books in my study at my house on the church, and they have titles like these, Center Church. These are all different books, too. Center Church, Deep Church, Slow Church, The Living Church, Analog Church, Total Church, Everyday Church, The Deliberate Church, The Word-Centered Church, and that's not even all of them. That was just the ones I wanted to list. And so it can be confusing to understand what is the church. So we want to understand what the church is uh, at its basic understanding, biblically speaking. So I want to try and answer this by looking at what the Bible says about the church under three descriptors. That was all intro. So now we're getting into the sermon. Three descriptors. The first is, the church is formed by God. The second is, the church is described by God. And then third, the church is shaped by God in Jesus. So the church is formed, the church is described, and the church is shaped. So first, the church is formed by God. Now, I think this is a good place for us to start because to understand that God himself forms the church will help us better understand the other topics around the church in this series that are going to come up. Things like church membership and giving and church discipline. Because you will begin to understand that the church is not something formed by humans to give us something to do on Sundays. Rather, the church is formed by God himself for a particular purpose which is to proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all of life. That is why God has formed the church, to point to Jesus, not to you. And the way in which God forms his church is both both global and local. So I'm going to read... Um, from Greg Allison's book here a little bit uh, called Sojourners and Strangers. It's a, it's a theology book on the church, but he defines the church in this way. He says, The church is the people of God who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and have been incorporated into his body through baptism with the Holy Spirit. This is the definition of 
what a church is. And then he goes on to say it it consists of two interrelated elements. The first is what is known as the universal church, or what I like to call the big C church. The universal church is the fellowship of all Christians that extends from the day of Pentecost until the second coming, incorporating both the deceased believers who are presently in heaven and the living believers from all over the world. So the Big C Church kind of puts all of this into perspective for us. It places us within biblical, historic ecclesiology, reminding us we are not the only show in town. We are not the only church in this country. We are not the only church in this world, nor have we ever been. We stand in a long line of faithful, global, historic, biblical churches. Churches across space and time. Churches of different cultures and ethnicities. America does not, uh, we don't have the market on how to do church correctly, by the way. The church is made up of different cultures and ethnicities, churches of different denominations and practices, but all fall within this definition of the universal church and the church definition at large. So the first element of this is is the universal church. The second element of this is the local church, which I call the little c churches. So local churches are led by pastors, also called elders, and served by deacons, Uh, possess and pursue purity and unity, exercise church discipline, develop strong connections with other churches, and celebrate the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Equipped by the Holy Spirit with spiritual gifts for ministry, these communities regularly gather to worship the triune God, proclaim His Word, engage non-Christians with the gospel, disciple their members, care for people through prayer and giving, and stand both for and against the world. So when we look at a passage like Matthew 16 that I read earlier, verses 13 through 19, it helps us to better understand uh, who Jesus is speaking about. Because when Jesus speaks these words to his disciples and and to Peter specifically, he's not just speaking to them. He's not just speaking to Peter, he's speaking to the future church. When he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, there are two things to see here, and just that one phrase, two things to see. First is understanding what the rock actually is that Jesus mentions. There's been lots of debates over this. This will probably continue to be a a debate until the end of time. But in some interpretations, uh, particularly in Roman Catholicism, uh, they say that Peter is the rock that Christ is building on. And then they go on to create a whole theology around this understanding and around this uh, misled interpretation of the text. I mean, that is where uh, popes come from. Peter, uh, to, to Roman Catholics, was the first pope. And then on and on it goes. Now, before you get on your high horse and you say, yeah, I knew Roman Catholics were wrong, another interpretation uh, that is misled is a more Protestant version. 
that claims that Jesus is actually speaking about himself as the rock and or speaking about Peter's actual confession as the rock in which Jesus will build his church. And really, this, this particular understanding, this particular under, uh, interpretation was, was actually just to combat what the Roman Catholics were saying about Peter. It wasn't really a deep dive into what the text actually says. So, so both of these interpretations come up short. So another way, another more helpful way that I think gets at what Jesus is actually saying here, uh, because you have to plug in some more scripture here uh, in order to understand the fullness of it. Scripture interprets scripture. Never take a verse out of its context. Um, always remember that. But another way in which to interpret this passage more accurately is to see the rock as Peter by virtue of his confession. So what this means is that the church is built through him, through Peter, as he preaches the gospel message. And this is seen in the the, sort of the salvation historical role that Peter plays in the New Testament, particularly in the the gospels, um, but also in the book of Acts. For instance, Peter is the one to announce the gospel to the Jews in Acts chapter 2, very boldly, if you remember that, uh, that's that first sermon that he preaches there. Then in Acts chapter 8, uh, along with John, uh, Peter confirms the inclusion of the Samaritans within the church. And then finally, in Acts chapter 10 through chapter 11, Peter is instrumental in the conversion of the first Gentiles and welcoming the first Gentiles into the church. And so the church is built through Peter as he preaches the gospel in these various contexts. As one uh, church father said, uh, whose name was Maximus of Tours, which is an epic name, but Maximus of Tours said, Peter is called a rock because he was the first to lay the foundations of the faith among the nations. The second observation in Jesus' words on this rock, I will build my church, is that it's Jesus who will do the building. It is Jesus who will do the building of his church because ultimately we must recognize it is that the church is not a human institution but a supernatural gathering of people that only Jesus himself could bring together. And nothing in this world or the next world can overthrow it. But he does involve us in this work. If you look at verse 19 there in Matthew 16, he says, Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So to be given the keys, the keys of the kingdom means the one who has the keys determines who should be admitted into the church and who must be refused admission to the church. And this responsibility is given to the church. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 83, defines what these keys are that the church has been given when it asks the question, what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The answer, the preaching of the holy gospel and Christian discipline or excommunication out of the Christian church By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and shut 
against unbelievers. Now, we'll talk more about some of these things in the coming weeks, but for now, I just want you to understand that the church formed by Christ is one that is made up of believers in Christ. Those who who do not believe the gospel are not part of the church. It is only believers. And as believers, as members of the church, we are called to live in a particular way as a particular people. And this is what drew people to the church. The early, in, in the early church, this is what drew people to the church. It was, it was their way of living. It was not services that were catered to those who don't believe with, with certain types of music or a certain type of atmosphere that was set or, or certain, uh, certain um, practices that are put in place so that uh, believers will, or unbelievers would come and experience this, this thing we are calling the church, we are calling this gathering or, or whatever it might be. That is not how the early church did it. Actually, I've just been reading a book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And actually, in the early church during that time, in the first, second, third, fourth century, uh, unbelievers were not even allowed to visit a church gathering. They wouldn't even let them in. They had to go through a whole, and I'm, I'm not, we're not putting that into practice here, just calm down. Um, but I'm just saying that, that it, it was not what was happening within the, the four walls of a church gathering that drew non-Christians into the church. It was the way they lived. As one scholar called it, their habitus. That their, their behavior communicated what they believed because they were being formed and shaped by the gospel. So not only has God formed his church, he also describes it to the world, and he does this by using different metaphors in the New Testament that show us how the church stands apart from every other institution on the planet, religious or otherwise. So throughout the New Testament, metaphors are used over and over again to describe God's people. We read a few of those in, in, uh, when I read from 1 Peter earlier. But metaphors, as you may know, are just simply, they're just word pictures, and there were pictures to help describe something a little bit more clearer. And these metaphors are, are God's own word pictures that genuinely describe the church, and they're key to our deepening of understanding of our own local church. And there are a lot of them. There are a wide range of these metaphors in the New Testament. And I say that to say um, that we should not exclusively focus on just one. That would be like, we, like looking at a diamond from only one angle and only seeing it just kind of in 2D or whatever and not turning it and, and looking at it from every angle to see all of its beauty. All of these metaphors together work in that way so that we can see the, the intricacy and the beauty of the church. So we'll just look at a few this morning just to give you a taste of just how intricate and beautiful the church actually is and how God himself describes it. So the first metaphor used is the church as a body. This might be a familiar one to you, but this metaphor used throughout the New Testament describes the church in two ways. First, as the body with Christ as the head. So in Ephesians 1, 22 through 23, 
Paul says, and he put all things under his feet, speaking about Jesus, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then also in Ephesians chapter 5, 25-30 that Miranda read for us earlier, Christ's love and care for the church is compared to how we love and care for our own bodies. Jesus caring for the church as we care for our own bodies. And just think about how much you love your body, how much you love yourself. Whether you're in a depressive state right now or not, you are going to leave this place and go feed that body because you care about it and you're hungry. Or you're going to go exercise to take care of your body. You're going to do something to care for yourself. So Jesus caring for the church as we care for our own bodies is a profound understanding of how much Jesus loves his church. Even more than you love your body. So a second way that body, this word body is used to describe the church, is our own activity as the church. And we'll we'll be in 1 Corinthians in a, in a few weeks, but... Paul speaks of the body in this way in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So this is a serious description with serious implications. So much so that it should cause you to rethink how you view and understand the church and your involvement in it, if you are a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian. Because to be a body, to be a body, means you must not only be present with other members, but you also must be active with other members of the body. Paul goes on to describe it this way. The rest of 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 19. He says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. So if the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body. Did you hear that? God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? And Paul is speaking about the church there. God has arranged the members in this body to work in a particular way. So the church's body, the second metaphor popular one is the church as a family. This is one we use around here a good bit at Christ the King. But in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul tells Timothy these words. He says, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So he is, he is using family language here, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And then in the Gospels, or before even Paul's words, in the Gospels, Jesus hints at this sort of understanding that the church is a family in, in the Gospel of Mark when he equates his spiritual family to his actual family. And if you remember the context of that, 
Jesus is in a very crowded room, and his, his mom and his siblings are trying to work their way into the room. And one of the ways they try to uh, work their way into, room, into the room is to say, well, hey, I'm his mom. I'm his, I'm his family member. I should be able to get you know, front row seats to the action. And Jesus' response to them is, is to look around and say these words. Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And he was speaking to those who were around him. Not his mom, not his siblings, but to those who were in his family. And in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 18, Paul quoting from the Old Testament says, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. One theologian, uh, Joseph Hellerman, addressing this idea in his book, When the Church Was a Family, uh, speaking to how we have lost this belief uh, in the church in the West, he writes these words. He says, We must embrace the fact that our value system has been shaped by a worldview that is diametrically opposed to the outlook of the early Christians and to the teachings of Scripture. As church-going Americans, we have been socialized to believe that our individual fulfillment and our personal relationship with God are more important than any connection we might have with our fellow human beings, whether in the home or in the church, meaning we, we, uh, we, we make Christianity about us and not about each other. We have in a most subtle and insidious way been conformed to this world. And I would add, and we don't even know it, it's so subtle that it creeps into our lives and we begin to make compromises in ways that we don't even realize we're making, sometimes until it's too late. But the church living and acting as a family bucks against this sort of conformity to individualism, and it's the identity that Jesus himself gives us as the church. The church is God's household. The church is God's family, and we as Christians are part of that family as sons and daughters of God, but also as brothers and sisters of one another. And I know that's kind of gotten over, you know, we use the word brother a lot, then that's kind of gotten overblown in like, mainly Southern Baptist church culture and things like that. Sorry if you're, that's where you're at. But, um, but truly, we are brothers and sisters to each other as, as believers in Christ. Those of you who are members of Christ the King, but we, we're also brothers and sisters with those who are across the world as well who call, who call themselves Christians. So my brother uh, Mofti, who is an Egyptian and lives in Egypt, he is my brother in Christ. He is part of my family in that way. So the third metaphor I'll highlight, and it's keeping with the family theme, <coughs> is the church's bride. Revelation 21-2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And then more famously, Paul says in Ephesians 5.32, the relationship between husband and wife refers to Christ and the church. Which simply declares the love of Jesus for his bride. Jesus loved his bride so much. He loved his church so much that he gave his life 
for her, and now he is bound to his church with all the oneness of husband and wife. We are his bride, and he loves us deeply. So we've learned so far that God forms the church, uh, that he names the church, and then finally he is shaping the church in Jesus. Because Jesus is bound to the church with all the oneness of husband and bride, that means he is with us always, doing his work in us and through us as the church. In the same way that he was using Peter, the rock, he is using us. So that means church is not just a place to go on Sunday to have your needs met, but it's a community in which Christ is using to shape you into his likeness. So you guys, if you've been around me long enough, you've heard me say that church is not a place you go, but it's who you are. It is a place that we go as far as we worship together as the body, but truly the church is a people. I mean, we could gather anywhere. We have. We've gathered all over the city. We can gather anywhere, and we are still the church of the living God. And all of this has many implications to why you should do your best to never miss gathering as the church each week to why we practice something like church discipline. Because the church is God's plan A. And there is no plan B. This is it. There is no other institution coming that God is going to somehow raise up because for some reason or another, the church isn't working. No, this is the plan. This is what God is using. And whether you like it or not, this is what Jesus has formed is what he's named and it is what he is shaping and we see that throughout the new testament from beginning to end every letter written in the new testament is written to the church it is not written to parachurch organizations although i think those are needed and are helpful it is not written to those it is not written to just uh traveling evangelists who who are not connected to a local church It's not written to any of those things. It is written to the church. And specifically, Paul is in a lot of his letters that he's written, he's writing to local churches. Churches like this. So in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, Paul gives this instruction to the Ephesian church. He says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now that that alone should transform your entire understanding and belief of the church. The church is not a singles group where you go to find someone to marry. The church is not a place where you go to be entertained by good music or a a TED Talk style of preaching. 
The church is not a place where you go because they have a great children's ministry and you can go drop them off and you know your children are going to be fed the word of God. The church, is, the church is not meant for that. None of that even existed up until very recently in church history. The church is a place where you are called to by God to a people and you are given a gift by Jesus himself so that you may build up the body with other members of the body. That's the church. And Paul is very clear about that in Ephesians. And even when you move to the very last book of the Bible, Jesus is still concerned for his church. He's not like, okay, we, we did our thing over here in the church. Now we're going to move on because we're, in, we're, in, we're talking about dragons now in Revelation. and that We don't need the church anymore. But no, Jesus never gives up on his bride. Revelation 1 through 3 deals with seven, seven different churches. Some were faithful, some were not so faithful, and Jesus lets them know. So I'm just going to read uh, a couple of these passages. So to the church in Ephesus, the same church that Paul was writing to, he says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So these are all the good things they're doing. He's, he's saying, you have done these things. This is encouraging. Continue on. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had, you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. And then to the church in Philadelphia, not PA, not Philadelphia PA. Um, I, I guess it could be at some point, but to the church in Philadelphia, he says this, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about, word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Jesus still cares for his bride, even to the very end of the age. Stay true to what I have called you to. So it's in moments like these that we see that Jesus has not forgotten his bride. He isn't neglecting his body ever. And he's not a wayward member of his family, but fully engaged in every way for the sake of the church. This is why the ascension of Jesus, that we don't talk about a whole lot uh, in, when we preach in the book of Acts, but in Acts 1, when Jesus ascends to heaven, this is why that moment is so important to the church. Because Jesus isn't, isn't just ascending because he's tired and he just needs a break, and he's a little sabbatical, so he's going to go up to heaven to get that. That's not what Jesus is doing. The reason Jesus ascends is twofold. One is Jesus says to his disciples, I can't send the helper until I leave. 
So, and the helper is going to help you way more than I, than I can help you by being physically present on the earth. So to ascend is for me to send the helper. And that's what he does. He sends the Holy Spirit to the church that we still have possession of today. The second reason Jesus ascends is, is to the right hand of the Father so that he can intercede on the church's behalf before the Father. And, and friends, that is what you want. You want the Holy Spirit and you want Jesus representing his bride before the Father. But Jesus, in that act, continues to shape his church. And he has been and continuing to and continues to shape a people and a place for those who are disenfranchised by this world. Who, who do find themselves kind of on the outskirts and who, who are looking for answers, but they're looking for answers in, in all of the wrong places of this world. The church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the family of God is the alternative to this world. Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, God of the nations, of the universe, um, in all, of, in all of, the, uh, of the bigness of your creation and uh, what you are doing throughout the cosmos, uh, you, have, you have chosen to focus in on this small gathering that we call Christ the King Church, that you find us beautiful that you find us uh, worthy of sending your son uh, to die for us and to redeem us. You, 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 find, us, um, you find us worthy enough to, to continue to, to work in us um, the truth and the, the light of, of the gospel. And I pray that as a church, we would be changed by that. That we would not seek to put our own uh, humanity or our own kind of touch on what you have formed, what you um, are, are shaping in us, and what you have named and described for us. I pray that we would be, more than anything, humbled by that reality, and that we would live more faithfully as your body, as your bride, as your people. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.